Do you remember that lesson that you learned in elementary school? Teacher stood up in front of the class with a, a, a spoon and a glass of water. She puts the spoon in the glass, holds it up for everybody to see. And so as you look through the glass, it seems like the spoon is bent. And yet your eyes are deceiving you because when the teacher pulls the spoon out of the glass, it's as straight as an arrow. So immediately you're scratching your head and you're wondering, uh, what's going on here? One moment this, the spoon is bent, the next moment it seems to be straight again. How can that be? Well, the spoon's not really bent, but the light was. We call this refraction. It's the bending of the light as the light passes through materials of different density. And when the light bends like that, it causes us to get a distorted view of reality. So the lesson we learned that day was this. You can't always trust what you see. Sometimes your physical eyes do not always tell you the truth of what you're looking at. Let's say you got a neighbor, and this guy's never been to school. Uh, he's never been taught that the earth revolves around the sun. He, he really believes it's the other way around. He really believes the sun revolves around the earth. Now you've tried to talk to him and explain, hey, it doesn't work like that. But no matter how many times you tried to state the facts and share the truth, he, he doesn't believe you. In fact, one morning, early one morning, you're bringing the trash out to the curb, and you see your neighbor standing over there in the yard, and he motions for you to come over. And so you come over to the yard, and you stand next to his side, and he points to this guy and say, David, common sense is going to show you that I'm right and you're wrong. Take a look at the sun. See it way over there in the east? Now, you know as well as I do, it's not going to stay there. Through the course of the day, it's going to move. By the middle of the day, it's going to be up there over our heads. By the end of the day, it's going to be way over there on the other horizon. David, keep your feet on the ground. Trust what you can see. Well, at that moment, you realize, my neighbor's never going to get it. He's just never going to understand the truth because he's chosen to limit his understanding to what he can only see with his physical eyes. Without a telescope, without the satellites and the pictures that we get from the sky, where you get a completely different perspective. In fact, only with that perspective do you truly understand what is, what is actually happening. Because otherwise, you're looking at things from the wrong point of view. Well, isn't that similar to a lesson that Jesus one day tried to teach his disciples? You remember one day Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And boy, every one of the disciples begins to respond, oh Lord, you've got everybody talking. I mean, everybody has some kind of opinion about you. Some people believe you're like the prophet Jeremiah. Some people believe you're like the man Elijah. Some people actually believe you're John the Baptist come back to life again. Jesus, the list just goes on and on. I mean, you've got the crowd talking. And it was true. Everybody had some kind of impression about Jesus. And even though these people were saying a lot of wonderful things about Jesus, yet no one was really seeing the truth about him. And why? Because everybody was looking at him from their own point of view. They were judging and evaluating him with their own intuition. So Jesus asks a second question. This time he turns to the twelve and he asks them, but, but who do you say that I am? And you remember how Peter answered? He said, you're the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, well, Peter, you've spoken the truth, but you didn't discover that truth by yourself. You didn't come up with that insight on your own. The only reason you know this truth about me is because God made it known to you. Remember how Jesus put it? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter, you never would have seen this with your own eyes. Only God could show it to you. And that's exactly what God had been doing over the past three years as Peter and the other disciples spent time following Jesus. Through all the parables that Jesus taught, through the miracles that he performed, through the prophecies he made, and seeing how those promises came true, God was showing them there's no one else like Jesus. He is unique. Only he can save this world from its sin. 
Well, that's the lesson that we've been learning here in Ephesians chapter 1. Faith, faith is looking at the world through God's eyes. It's looking at life from his point of view. And only then do you get an accurate picture of what's really happening. Well, this morning, I want you to see how that same truth is brought out in this verse that we're going to study. We're just going to look at one verse this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Look at this with me. The Apostle Paul writes... And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. Here's the reason why the Apostle Paul came to the city of Ephesus. He knows about this pagan environment. He realizes everybody here in the city of Ephesus, they truly believe there is a supernatural dimension to life. But the problem is this, they're all confused about what life is really like in that other realm. They think there are many gods, and these gods are mean and moody and hard to get along with. So if you're ever to get any one of those gods to do something nice for you, you either have to bribe them or you have to trick them with some kind of sorcery or witchcraft. Acts chapter 19 gives us an example of this. Uh, there were some men in Ephesus who claimed to be exorcists, and one day they were trying to cast out an evil spirit when the spirits, the demons, turned on them and began to beat them up, and they beat them up so badly that now everybody in the town of Ephesus gets scared. And now some of the people begin to bring their scrolls, their books of magic, and the magic that we're talking about is not like the kind of magic you see occasionally on TV when somebody stands up in front of an audience to entertain them and pull a rabbit out of the hat. We're not talking about that. We're talking about that dark magic that you find in the world of the occult, these books of sorcery and witchcraft where the people are learning how to trick and deceive the gods and, and get them to do something nice for them. Well, now they're scared because they realize this is a dangerous thing. And so they begin, the Bible tells us they bring their scrolls, these books of magic, and they throw them into this huge bonfire. And the Bible tells us there was more than $5 million worth of books destroyed in the fire that day. See, the city of Ephesus is heavy into this dark side of life. So the Apostle Paul comes to town because I want you to know the truth. I want you to understand what life is really like in that other realm. There are not many gods, there's only one. And he's not mean or moody. He is rich in mercy. And in order to get his attention, in order to get him to do something nice for you, you don't have to bribe him and you don't have to try to trick him. In fact, long before we ever tried to connect with him, he was reaching out to us. You see, this message of truth that Paul's talking about here in this verse, he's talking about our book here, the Bible. This is God's book. This is the book that God put together. Here's God talking to us. Here's God showing us what he is really like. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to say, you could actually call this message of truth a gospel. And that word gospel, it means good news, but we're not just talking about news of any kind. We're talking about news of an extraordinary kind. He says, the gospel of your salvation. Now, here's what concerns me. I don't, I don't think we appreciate this like we should. I think some of us have come to church uh, so long, and we've heard that word gospel so many different times, we're just kind of numb to it. it it doesn't amaze us anymore. You see, some of us, when we think about our salvation, we think it was simply this decision that we made a long time ago. Yeah, I put my trust in Jesus. I got my ticket to heaven. I made that transaction with the Lord. I'm okay. I'm good. And then from that moment on, there's hardly ever any contact with the Lord. From that moment on in our everyday life, there's no real ongoing deep connection with the Lord. Why? Because we assume that our salvation was just simply that one moment in time when we made a decision for Jesus and he rescued us. And once he brought us out of the water, once he carried us out of the fire, that's all there was to it. I'm saved. 
Well, yes, when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about this aspect of a rescue. But that's only one aspect of the salvation. Jesus didn't come to the world just to save us from our sin. He also came here to lead us into a new life with God. So think of it like this. Say one day you're standing on the beach and you decide to take a little swim out there in the ocean. Well, you get out a little too far. You get yourself in trouble. Now you're starting to drown. Well, fortunately, that day, there's a lifeguard working on the beach, and he sees what's happening. He comes to your rescue, and he pulls you out of the water. Now, you've never met this man before, but did that keep you from being saved? No. And you have no idea what this lifeguard is like as a human being. I mean, what if he's got a horrible personality? What if he lies to his friends, and he never, never pays his bills on time? What if he's a bad neighbor, and he never takes care of his yard? Does any of that information matter to you when you're out here drowning in the ocean? No! At that moment in time when you're thrashing about in the water and you're struggling to save, stay alive, the only thing that matters is this, I need help. I need to be rescued. And then you think about once the lifeguard pulls you back on the beach, you're never going to see him again. Oh, I mean down the road. You may send him a gift and a thank you card and say, hey, thank you for saving my life. But other than that, you're not going to have any kind of meaningful contact with him. I mean, it doesn't matter to you whether he was a good man or not. All that matters is this. When I was in trouble, when I was in serious trouble, he knew how to swim. He knew how to pull me out of the water. You see, in that kind of setting, being saved simply means being rescued. But when the Bible talks about being saved, it means something so much more than that. Please do not misunderstand me. Being rescued by Jesus, being set free from our sin, it's amazing, incredible, it's wonderful. We need to celebrate that again and again and again. But when the Bible talks about being saved, it's not just God getting us out of a jam. That's why when you read through the Bible, you'll notice it'll use a variety of expressions to, to describe this, this, this gift of salvation. It talks about entering into the kingdom of God. It talks about enjoying eternal life. Or it's this phrase here with Paul in verse 13 says, you were included in Christ. Why? Because when Jesus came to the world, he not only came here to save us from our sin, he also came to save us for a new life, a new eternal relationship with him. So that's why Paul, the very last part of this verse, he says, we need to understand and really appreciate what happened to us at the moment we first received that gift of salvation. He says, when you believed, you were marked in him. You were marked in Jesus with a seal. And the seal he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. The one that God talked about throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the one that God promised would one day come and live and work inside your life and mine. So what does the Bible mean by this expression? You are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. Well, let's say one day you go out to Washington, D.C. You're going out there to, to, to visit the Smithsonian Institute. I mean, you'd just be amazed by what they have on display there. It's the world's largest museum, more than 150 million artifacts. I mean, they got everything from moon rocks to the ruby slippers that were worn by Dorothy in the, the movie The Wizard of Oz. Every year, more than 30 million people come to visit this place, and they'll tell you, it takes more than a week just to see everything they've got. Got all these fabulous gowns that were once worn by the president's wives. They got the early telephones used by Alexander Graham Bell. They got the many inventions of Thomas Edison and the writings of Benjamin Franklin, and it just goes on and on and on. But then, the, then there's this one display that kind of takes you by surprise. In a small glass case, there's a little wooden whistle lying on a piece of velvet. And the first time you see it, you think, well, why is that here? 
What's so special about this? It's just a small, plain-looking wooden whistle. Why would you have something like this in the Smithsonian? And then one of the attendants comes along, and he turns on the light, so now you can read the print on the card, the little card that's sitting in front of the whistle. And the card reads, Handmade by George Washington. Now I get it. Now I understand. It's not the whistle. It's who made it, who used it. That's what makes this whistle special. Well, that's the idea that's behind this expression that we are, we are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul will use this expression seven different times in various letters, and each time it has a little different meaning or nuance to it. But in this particular verse, I think the key idea he's trying to emphasize is this. Back in Bible times, when they would put a seal on something, they put it there to mark it, to mark it so everybody would know this is who it belongs to. You know, we do the same thing today when you write your name in your book because you're wanting other people to know that book belongs to me. That book is mine. Or you send your kids off to camp. You send them off to a week of camp. And moms, what do you do? You put a label on them, every one of their clothes because you want to make sure you don't lose those clothes. I want you to know who those clothes belong to. Or you go to the store and you begin to notice, man, some of those tennis shoes, they cost a lot of money. Why? Because it's got a name attached to it. Jordan Curry or some other famous athlete and immediately the price goes up and the value increases because when you wear that particular shoe it's got an identity attached to it that's what the apostle Paul's talking about here at the moment of our salvation you are sealed with God's Holy Spirit meaning he put his mark on you because he wants all the world to know from this moment on you're going to see something different in this person's life they now belong to the Lord, which means from now on, you're going to see God living and working inside that person's life. So to say that somebody's sealed with the Holy Spirit means you're, you've become one of God's fingerprints. You're not only made in his image now every day because you're equipped and enabled by God's Holy Spirit. You're now made to reflect his image, to display his goodness, to show his glory to the world around you. So here's an example. At the end of the day, I can look back in the day, and I ought to begin to notice the different ways in which God touched my life. God, I saw you today. I saw you working in little Joe's life. I saw how you answered his prayers, and you helped him pass that test at school. God, I, I met you today when I had breakfast with my friend, and we sat down at the table, and we talked, and we prayed. I could just sense your presence there. And God, I saw you in his smile, and I heard you in his words of wisdom and grace. God, I caught a glimpse of your glory today when I saw that nurse in the kind and gentle way that she took care of my mother. God, you brought a touch of heaven to my life today, and I just want to say thank you. Do you see, being a Christian is not just coming to a church building on Sunday morning. There's more to it. When you are sealed with God's Holy Spirit, now being a Christian is all about how you build that house, how you answer the phone, how you raise your children, how you deal with those difficult customers. Because now you've got God's mark on your life. You're one of his fingerprints, means, meaning every day you're equipped by the Holy Spirit to bring a touch of heaven to the people around you. So to be sealed by God's Holy Spirit means... Now you've got a whole new identity. There's a new name written on your life, not your name, God's name. Every day I bear his image. Every day I, I carry this seal. I, I bear that mark, which means everything I do is a reflection upon him. Now I'm not just a man. I'm God's man. Now I'm not just a husband anymore. I'm a husband representing the Lord, seeking to love and care for my wife as the Lord would. Now I'm not just a grandfather anymore. No, I'm a grandfather who's on a mission, on a mission to, love, to show my grandchildren the love of God. Now everything I do is an opportunity to show the people around me. Here's what God is really like. 
many years ago when Tom Landry was fired as the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, there were many guys in the media that wanted to pay tribute to him, even though he'd been fired. Yet there were many guys in the media, the reporters, they knew him. They had enormous respect for Tom Landry because he was a well-known Christian man. Good times or bad, just the way he carried himself. So a couple months after he was fired, many of the reporters came together one night to honor him. And one by one, they got up and shared their testimonies. Well, one of the reporters told about this time. The Cowboys had suffered this humiliating defeat, just terribly embarrassed on the field of play. And yet, after the game, Coach Landry came to the press room like he always did stood in front of the cameras and answered every one of the questions that were thrown at him. I mean, thrown. That day was a hostile atmosphere. The reporters were anything but kind. They were really taking it out on Coach Landry. And yet, Tom Landry stood there and answered every one of their questions with grace and dignity. When the interview was finally over, the media guys began to pack up their equipment, and one by one, they're walking out of the room. But this reporter said it was at that point in time we realized our crew, our camera wasn't working. We hadn't caught a thing. We had nothing to show in the broadcast that night. He said, I was in a state of panic. So he said, I went running down the hallway, chasing after Tom Landry, saying, Coach, Coach, you got to help me out. Now you think about this. Here's Tom Landry, one of the lowest moments of his life. Suffered this humiliating defeat. Nobody took it worse than he did. I mean, really hurt him. And yet he has to stand before the cameras, grilled by the reporters, answering every one of their painful questions, accepting all the blame for that defeat. And yet, once he heard about this reporter and his dilemma, no complaints and no hesitation, he immediately turns around, he comes back to the interview room, and he went through the entire interview again for just this one reporter. The reporter said, that day I learned something about Coach Landry, something that went way beyond the game of football. I saw that man's character, his godly dignity. That day I realized who this man really is. Here's a man who belongs to the Lord. Can others see that in us? Can other people see God's fingerprint on your life and mine? Do other people ever experience a, a touch of heaven when they meet us? Because we truly are marked and sealed by God's Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your great mercy that has given to us a new life in Christ. God, every day, would you increase our capacity to receive and experience and enjoy that life that he wants to share with us? God, every day in our everyday routines, would you encourage us to just really connect and interact with Jesus so that we can know him better and trust him more? And so that, God, every day, the people around us can see more and more of Jesus living in us. I pray for this in Jesus' name.